0: Law Matters podcast, a podcast about the rule of law and why it matters. This podcast is brought to you by the Law Society of British Columbia. The Law Society is a regulatory body that protects the public by setting and enforcing professional standards for lawyers in our province. Conservative MP Michael Chong joins us today to talk about orders in council and the unwritten rule of law on Parliament Hill. Michael was first elected as a member of the Conservative Party in 2004 and has previously served as a cabinet minister under former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. John Fessinger, our host, is a lawyer and teaches at the Allard School of Law and Thompson Rivers Faculty of Law. John practices in the areas of digital, media, entertainment, communications, and sports law. Here is their discussion.
1: Welcome, Michael. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Uh, Can you talk a bit about what you believe the federal government's role as an institution is when it comes to the rule of law?
2: Well, great to be here, John. I I think uh, the federal government's role really is twofold. I think, first, uh, it's to uphold the rule of law uh, through the administration of justice in federal areas of jurisdiction. Uh, whether that be uh, the court system, uh, whether that be uh, the federal law enforcement agencies, and the role of the various ministers of the Crown who have responsibility that touches on the rule of law, such as the Minister of Justice and Attorney General for Canada. The second way in which, though, the government upholds the rule of law is within the government of Canada, within the agencies boards commissions crown corporations departments and parliament of canada Uh, i think within federal institutions uh, we have to ensure that we ourselves conduct ourselves to the highest standards of ethics and accountability to the highest standards of adhering to the law and ensuring that the law is followed by and within uh, federal institutions. And so I think really that's the twofold way in which the federal government as an institution upholds the rule of law.
1: There's an old saying, um, and I'm sorry that I can't cite its origins, but it was in a Canadian case that uh, justice should not be a cloistered virtue. Um, You have been concerned about Uh, the current use of orders in council um, uh, for some time. Uh, And you feel that the public should be concerned about uh, the use of orders in council and secrecy in orders in council. Can you uh, elaborate on that for us and and tell tell us a bit more about what concerns you and what should concern us?
2: Yeah, I think the big thing that has happened in the last several years is an alarming increase in the number of secret orders and counsel. Uh, these are orders and council that have not been published in the Canada Gazette uh, that have been, haven't been published anywhere. And so their whereabouts, uh, their details are completely unknown. In fact, the only way that we were able to surmise that the they even existed was because there was a gap in the sequencing of the order and council numbers. Um, and so I think the significant increase in these orders and council in itself is a concern. Um, there's been a market jump since 2015 in the use of these secret orders and council. Um, the government uh, hasn't provided an explanation as to what the nature of these orders in council are, and that's very concerning. Uh, there are times in which it's appropriate to have a secret order in council. You know, For example, if something relates to national security uh, or to an ongoing military operation, then uh, that would warrant secrecy. But Uh, I think the government, at very least, needs to provide a better explanation than they have to this point about uh, the increasing use of these orders, these secretive orders in council.
1: So the administrative lawyer in me is sort of bound to ask, you know, what's the authority for secret orders in council? Uh, do, Do they exist by a particular statutory right or are they... Uh, just a right of parliament that's been accepted. Um, you know, w- w- how do they come to be? How does somebody think a secret order and council is okay? Or is a is it a mix of statutes and other things?
2: I believe it's a mix of statutes and other things. With regard regard to the uh, secret orders and council that have been issued in the last six or so years, it's hard to tell because we don't actually know what they are, we just know they exist. So whether they were uh, promulgated under uh, a statute uh, or under uh, other authorities, it's not clear. So uh, I suspect that it may be a combination of both.
1: So from a rule of law perspective, and and sorry if I'm the one editorializing, it should be you. Um, If you don't know what the order is and it's secret, then how can it be challenged validly in the justice system? You don't have enough to even challenge it. Um, Comment, thoughts?
2: Well, that's a very good point. And this is where parliament becomes very important and why we need a strong, robust parliament. Uh, So much of our constitutional democracy is based on unwritten conventions or crown prerogative, um, powers and authorities that can really only be regulated by uh, a legislature uh, such as the House of Commons. And that's why we need a robust parliament, a robust House of Commons that can challenge executive authority. Orders and council are uh, instruments of executive authority. And as you know, in our system, we don't directly elect our government. Uh, Governments in Canada are appointed. They're appointed out of a legislature, generally out of a legislature, but heads of government are appointed based on an assessment by the crown as to which individual has the majority support in the elected legislature. Um, And so by virtue of that fact, uh, that is the accountability uh, mechanism, Executives, uh, executive authority, crown prerogative in Canada needs to be held accountable by the elected legislature. And so, when we talk about secret orders and council, when we talk about the immense powers of the executive branch of our system, whether it's federal or provincial, uh, we need to be mindful that the way that executive branch is held in check and balance is in part through an independent judicial system, which can arbitrate on matters of uh, statutory law matters of, of jurisdiction, but it cannot arbitrate in terms of the unwritten conventions that govern a lot of executive authority. And that only can be arbitrated on by a legislature, by a legislature and its committees. And so strengthening the House of Commons and its committees um, by uh, better balancing power uh, between two powerful PMO and prime minister and individual members of parliament, I think, becomes increasingly important as we see the promulgation of these secret orders in council.
1: You know, it's a very interesting question in law um, because you're right, executive power is generally beyond the reach of the court, uh, unless there is a constitutional principle at play. And secret government could easily be seen by the courts as just such a constitutional principle. So I, I, I do think some of these practices are potentially reviewable. On the other hand, if you went into a court and said, there is a there's a secret Uh, order in council. I don't know what it is, but I want to question it. That looks an awful lot like a fishing expedition that the courts don't like. Um, One other technical question. Um, Do you know of any time limitation by which these secret orders in council have to become public or available to historians or otherwise? Um, uh, uh, able to be reviewed.
2: I know of no uh, time requirement to make these orders in council public. Um, And I think that's a problem as well. But I I go back to an earlier point you make, and that is that not all, not all uh, constitutional issues are uh, subject to judicial review. Only those aspects of our written constitution are subject to judicial review. In fact, there's jurisprudence in Canada that clearly um, indicates that you know, when it comes to the written aspects of our constitution, the courts have a role to play in ensuring that uh, legislation is intra they have a role to play in... in ensuring legislation is compliant with the constitution, but where the courts have said they have no role to play is in arbitrating and reviewing the unwritten conventions that are part of our constitution. And, you know, the famous patriation case reference case of the early 1980s where the court said, well, based on the, the black text of the constitution, the federal government has the right to unilaterally patriate the constitution, but based on the unwritten conventions of their constitution, it requires the consent of the provinces, but we aren't going to uh, arbitrate that. That's really up to the political side, the legislatures of the land to sort all of that out. Uh, And so when it comes to the immense part of our constitution that's unwritten, uh, you know, it's really up to us to ensure as Canadians, as a democracy, that we have robust legislatures, a robust parliament that can provide that, uh, that review um, of the executive branch's uh, powers.
1: So sort of going from there, um, you know, one of the strongest arguments against this happening, is the diminishment of trust uh, that would that results or that should result um, amongst Canadians in the institution uh, of Parliament and the institution of government? Um, do you see that as the primary danger uh, in in this habit of uh, secret orders in council?
2: I, I think that's one of the dangers. I. Look, uh, secrecy is a tool and it can be an important tool. If you think about uh, trade negotiations between two different countries, um, Mm -hmm. you'd want those to be conducted uh, behind closed doors until a final draft agreement is hammered out. Um, If you think about collective bargaining agreements between an employer and a union, there again, you'd want to have those more open discussions in secret behind closed doors so that the two parties can come to some sort of agreement. When you think about military operations, matters related to national security, again, you know, secrecy is an important tool, but uh, too much secrecy is corrosive. It diminishes the public's trust uh, as to what in government. Uh, It diminishes Uh, the public's confidence in their institutions. And it leads to rumors and speculation um, about something that may not be the case. And so, uh, you know, too much secrecy is a a bad thing. And uh, that's why I think in this day and age, we have to guard against it.
1: Well, let's return to something we talked about earlier. Um, uh, You and I, I think, subtly disagree um, on uh, whether the courts, uh, you know, I, I I hear your argument clearly and I teach administrative law uh, about what what the gov- what what the courts could intervene in. Um, I think there are um, some doors open to the courts. I grant you not many um, when it when it comes to you know, secret government per se and the question as as you've, <clears throat> very well stated is how much secrecy is is too much. Um, But do you think that one way of dealing with these issues and making making secret government actions clearly at least reviewable by the court or at least limited in term um, would be to create clear constitutional status um, with respect to aspects of the unwritten rule of law,
2: uh, I think we should be cautious about um, changing the way the unwritten constitution is arbitrated. Um, I think instead we should strengthen our legislatures. So I'll give you one example, you know. From, Everyone in British Columbia will be familiar with the, the matters concerning former Minister of Justice, Jody Wilson-Raybould. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what happened there um, was arguably a violation of our unwritten constitution as embodied by what is called the Shawcross Doctrine. Um, and so the courts are not able to arbitrate whether or not the Shawcross Doctrine was violated. That really was... The responsibility of the House of Commons, but the F- House of Commons, in my view, failed to uphold its responsibility to review, to prosecute, and to remedy uh, that violation of the Shawcross doctrine. The Shawcross doctrine, as you know, says that you know the Prime Minister and other ministers of Cabinet um, cannot interfere uh, with the role of the Attorney General as it relates to an ongoing criminal investigation. Um, Clearly, uh, that wasn't the case. And what should have happened was that the House of Commons or one of its committees, in this case, the Justice Committee, should have been able to uh, review what happened, uh, determine that the doctrine had been violated, and then uh, propose a remedy uh, to that violation, which could have taken the form of censor or a reprimand of the prime minister and the government but it never got to that point because of the immense power of party leaders in our system particularly the prime minister to control parliament and to shut down debate and to control uh, procedure and committee Um, and so my view is that instead of creating a mechanism outside parliament to deal with these sorts of matters that Uh, that we need to introduce further reforms to the House of Commons uh, to better balance power between party leaders, particularly the prime minister, which have too much power, and individual members of parliament um, so that we can actually have a a better better review and enforcement of the unwritten aspects of our constitutional system of government.
1: So a a more robust... Um, more independent um, uh, entity or process that would uh, deal with the inherent conflict of a majority government being put in the position of uh, investigating itself, Uh, as opposed to judicial, uh, you know, constitutional status that would result in uh, judicial intervention. Um, Is that fair?
2: Yeah, I think that's fair. I think, um, yes, I think that's fair. Um, Look, our system has evolved on the legislative side and on the executive side in dramatic fashion over the last 150 years in a way that uh, has concentrated power in party leaders. Um, And I think we need to reverse some of that uh, evolution, back to a system where power is devolved back into individual members of a legislature away from uh, the party leadership um, you know it's it's interesting a century and a half ago uh, MPs were referred to as loose fish uh, in the bottom of a of a fishing boat and everyone knows who's captured fish uh, how they flop around and they're slippery and you can't control them well imagine having, 338 loose fish in the bottom of a, a fishing boat trying to control them, you're not going to be able to. They'll be flopping everywhere and out of your control. Um, it's remarkable to think about that, um, that, uh, that description of MPs a century and a half ago to today, where often members of parliament are referred to as trained seals, um, another use of an animal uh, parallel, but in a very different way. Uh, and I think that just reflects the evolution of our system. Um, and so I think that's where really the the focus needs to be put on in order to uh, strengthen accountability.
1: I, I, I suppose, you know, and you can see that I'm, uh, and hear that I'm struggling a little bit with uh, my own tendency to want the courts to be able to review most things. but uh, But another sort of argument in your favor here is that if parliament is really empowered Um, to control its own procedures and does so really well and doesn't need the courts, um, that will result in less politicization of the courts. Um, And we can see in other countries uh, what happens to the rule of law when courts become too politicized. So uh, that's an additional virtue uh, to your position, in in my view. It's
2: also another thing Another thing that um, the unwritten constitution gives us is flexibility. You know, mm-hmm. I was always taught, uh, I was taught by this late professor, uh, Stefan Dupré at the University of Toronto. And many of us took his iconic uh, Paul 100 course. And he always taught that determining whether or not something was an unwritten constitutional convention really was determined through a two-step process. Can the convention first be articulated? And secondly, uh, do the people in the political system, do the actors in the political system act in conformity with the convention as articulated? And so what that means essentially is that conventions can evolve and you don't have to go through some arduous uh, uh, amendment formula that you see on the written side of our constitution, which makes it very difficult. We can evolve our system much more easily, which provides a great deal of flexibility. Um, So that's an advantage of having an unwritten constitution. Um, I would argue that in the past several decades, in the last 50 years, it's evolved in the wrong way to concentrate too much power in party leaders, Um, but equally it could evolve back into a different way.
0: Well, well,
1: let me ask you kind of one last question. It's sort of the elephant in the room question um, for everything we've we've discussed. And, and it's admittedly a very, very difficult question for you to answer because you don't know uh, what's in all of these orders in council. Um, but why do you think uh, to the extent that 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 you can comment on this, uh, that we've had this disturbing tendency, um, and and it isn't necessarily you know uh, one party because we we you know we've we've seen it uh, happen in your party as well, but this disturbing tendency recently to have more and more uh, secret processes and secret orders in council.
2: Uh, that's a good question. I, the short answer is I don't know. Um, but I could speculate. I think, you know, at the federal level within the federal government, I think one possible explanation is that we not only had a new government come into office in 2015, we also had a significantly different House of Commons elected. Um, and we had, Uh, hundreds of new MPs, uh, new citizens, our fellow citizens get elected for the first time to the Federal House of Commons, and they came with them, uh, they came to Ottawa with a lot of new energy and new ideas, but at the same time, they lacked the institutional knowledge that uh, had been there in previous parliaments. And I think the combination of the two, a newly appointed government with a new uh, parliament uh, made up of a significant number of new MPs um, l- maybe led to a situation where um, the government uh, relied on these secret orders and council to a greater extent than previous governments, not, not only because they could, they could get away with it, so to speak, because there weren't as many people keeping track of this, but also because they might not have been aware that uh, they were using them to a much greater extent than was previously the case, so, um, but so, you yeah. know, as you pointed out, we're seeing this not just in the in the federal realm. We're also seeing this in the court system, where there's an increasing number of uh, publication bans yep. and a, a decreasing um, adherence to the open court principle. Um, so, you know, we're living in an age where I think it's important to fight against this increasing secrecy because. Um, public trust is already fragile in our institutions um, and I think a critical way to restore or strengthen that public trust is by being open and transparent
1: Michael Chong, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rule of Law Matters podcast To summarize, we covered areas ranging from the unwritten rule of law on Parliament Hill, to orders in council and how they're used if there's anything you would like to know more about, or if you have any questions, please feel free to email us at podcast at lsbc.org.